When thinking back to American history class, you might recall discussing the Declaration of Independence, the Civil War, and the Civil Rights Movement. At an early age, kids learn about the lives and stories of figures like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. But what about other events and influential figures in American history, specifically those involving the LGBTQ community? Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, LGBTQ History 101, how one organization is working to cast light on gay Americans in schools. The content that we develop, we don't call it curriculum per se, because the intention is that it is woven into the curriculum. More on the organization History Unerased coming up. But first, we meet Eric Marcus, the creator and host of a podcast called Making Gay History. The podcast was born out of an oral history project Eric conducted a number of years back. Eric joins me now on the phone. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. A delight. Very glad to speak with you. So what inspired this podcast, Making Gay History? The podcast was very much an accident. (laughs) The shortest answer is I got fired from my job at an organization, a suicide prevention organization, and I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I knew that the New York Public Library had been working on digitizing my collection of 100 interviews that I'd conducted for an oral history of the LGBTQ civil rights movement that was first published in 1992. so uh, it turned out that they had just finished doing the, the digitizing. These were recorded on uh, cassette tapes. And one of the first conversations I had when I was exploring what I might do with my archive was with two women from a group called History Unerased uh, that's developing K-12 through LGBT-inclusive uh, curricula. And when they heard what I had, um, these interviews with people who were involved in some aspect of the, of the movement, they were excited about the idea of using uh, clips from my archive. So I asked my neighbor, who's a BBC producer and worked for NPR, if she could cut tape. Um, And she said yes. And when we started cutting tape, once we got down to about 10-minute pieces, with the goal of getting to three or four minutes for uh, for History and Erased, um, Sarah looked at me and said, I think this is a podcast. Um, And to make a long story short, we launched a podcast really not knowing what we were doing. And it's turned out to be something that that has been – listened to um, all over the world. We're downloaded in 208 countries and territories around the world. And we've had 1.7 million episode downloads. Wow. Um, Yeah, wow. We were told not to expect more than a couple of thousand per episode. How many years ago did you start? Uh, October a year ago. So how many episodes in are you? 33. 33. How varied are the voices in your podcast? Oh, very varied. Um, From... Uh, Dr. Evelyn Hooker, who conducted the first study comparing uh, gay and straight men in the 1950s, in which she concluded that gay men were no crazier than straight men, which was revolutionary at the time, to uh, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha B. Johnson, who were two of the iconic trans folks who were involved in the Stonewall Uprising, to um, Dear Abby, to Ellen DeGeneres, Larry Kramer, and then a lot of people who are who are not heard of. Um, Such as? Oh, a guy named Wendell Sayers, who was taken by his mother to the Mayo Clinic from Western Kansas in 1920 to be diagnosed as a homosexual. Um, he was involved peripherally in the movement, but what makes his story remarkable is he was a, a young black gay man um, trying to navigate the world in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and then by the 1950s, when he worked for the Attorney General's office in Colorado, he was the first black person uh, to work as an attorney for the Attorney General's office, um, he got involved in the movement, which then was was a very small movement. But there had been there was a national convention um, of gay groups in Denver in the late 50s, and 
Wendell attended uh, the convention and attended some meetings. Um, his story, his story stayed with me forever. Um, I interviewed him when he was in his mid-80s, and as I was leaving his house, he asked me if I thought it was too late for him to meet someone. He had spent most of his life alone and was looking for a companion. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It struck me when you said to be diagnosed as a homosexual. Yes, um, yes, and when he was diagnosed as a homosexual, as his father suspected that he was, um, he was 16 years old, and they told him at the hospital that they should call the police and have him incarcerated. Um, and he thought that it was, I mean, he realized later it was mostly to scare him. But in those days, gay people were incarcerated because of, of if they'd get caught by the police or entrapped by the police um, in bar raids or, or elsewhere. Uh, yeah, and homosexual relations were illegal in most places. How much do you think young LGBTQ people today know about the people who came before them, the people who experienced that? They know almost nothing, and I don't blame them. And I hear, I hear from young people all the time saying, I, I didn't know these stories, and, I feel, and they say they feel bad about it. But they're not to blame. There's almost nothing in any high school history or social studies textbook uh, where they could possibly learn about this. What I find, though, is there's enormous hunger for this information. Um, the emails that I get from young people and older people, too, are just extraordinary in terms of how moved they are by these stories, how glad they are to know their history. And I think it's important to know our own, our own histories, where we came from. Um, I grew up in a Jewish family, and I certainly learned about my heritage through my family and through Hebrew school, um, which I went to twice a week after regular school. But no one taught me about my heritage as a gay person. And I take enormous pride in that history now that I know it. But I didn't know it. I thought I was the only one in the world. And even if kids don't think they're the only ones in the world now uh, who, who are LGBTQ, it certainly helps to know what their history is so they know how to fight for their rights today. You grew up here in New York City. You grew up in Queens, right? I grew up in Kew Gardens, Queens, yeah, in a neighborhood filled with refugees from World War II, Austrian and German refugees. So how different was New York City for a gay kid, a gay man, while <laughs> you came up here in New York? <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. Um, it was really different. Um, I thought I was the only one. I joked that I grew up in the Iowa of New York, um, even though I was not that far from the subway line. Um, I uh, I made it to Manhattan maybe twice a year, once to see the Christmas tree with my family and at Christmas at Rockefeller Center, and once in May for my sister's birthday. My grandmother took my sister and her friends to Radio City Music Hall to see a show, see a movie and a show. In those days, the Rockettes danced after the movie and to uh, to lunch, and that was pretty much it. I didn't see Greenwich Village until I was until I graduated from high school. I didn't know gay people. I didn't know they existed until I read a condensed version of a book called Consenting Adult by Laura Z. Hobson. Um, it was in the Reader's Digest in my dentist's office in 1974 or 75. Um, and it's a story about a mother and her gay son and coming to terms with his homosexuality. I had never read such a thing before, and I recognized myself immediately in their story. You were one of what, two openly gay people in your class at Columbia? Yeah, this is at the journalism school. I did a master's in journalism in 1983-84, and I was one of two openly gay people in my class. Um, and we were warned that uh, we should be careful about being out in the world of journalism because we'd have trouble getting work. What do you wish you knew as a gay kid growing up in New York City back then that you know today? Oh, that I could have the life I have. Um, I, wouldn't have been a, I wouldn't have been so depressed, um, and I wouldn't have felt so isolated. Uh, so I wish I had known the history that I wrote. 
Um, so often in my career, I've written books that I wished had been on the shelves when I was growing up. So when I wrote this oral history of the gay civil rights movement, what was then called the gay civil rights movement, in '92. Um, that's in 1992. That's the book I wish I had read when I was a young person, to know my history and know that I could have a, a good life. How did that first opportunity come up for you to write this history? I got a call from an editor at what was then called Harper and Row, now Harper Harper Collins. He had read my first book, which was the Male Couples Guide, and he liked how I did interviews. And he called and asked me if I would write an oral history of the of the gay civil rights movement, which I thought was nuts because I wasn't an academic. I had no experience um, researching history, but he said he wanted someone who could come fresh to the topic, and I was so fresh I didn't know anything about it. I just knew I knew about Stonewall and was shocked to find that there was a, a very rich history that came two decades before Stonewall. So not having known that history, how did you go about researching it and finding the voices, the people to interview? Well, as a good journalist, I went out and did what I was taught to do, which is to ask lots of questions. Well, first you go to the library. Um, in those days, and I found that there were uh, there were there was one key history book um, by a guy named John D'Amelio, which covered um, the period after World War II and up through the early 70s. Um, and so I, I began to take down names. Well, the first thing I had to do was create a timeline. There was no timeline of the movement, so I used his book. I also uh, worked. I was living in San Francisco at the time. I uh, got help from the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco. They had an archive, and I went through every single issue of the Advocate from the late '60s through uh, 1989 or 90, and created an, uh, a timeline of all the events and took a list of names. Um, and then I started calling people and writing letters. Um, there was one person in particular I wanted to interview whose name was Lisa Ben. I didn't know that her real name was Edith Ide. She wrote the first newsletter for lesbians on her typewriter at her office at RKO Pictures in Hollywood when she was in her 20s in 1947. But that wasn't her real name wasn't Lisa Ben. So how do you find how do you find someone who didn't even use her real name? So I, I counted 26 phone calls before I finally reached her. Who haven't you interviewed that you wish you could or could have if they're no longer with us? I wished I hadn't missed Bayard Rustin. Um, he died before I started my work. Um, so he's someone who I really wish I had been able to interview because of his rich uh, history and connection to the black civil rights movement, which for so many of the early activists in the LGBTQ civil rights movement was the role model. They provided the roadmap for, for what people did in, in the gay movement. Um, so he's a, he's a key person. Um, I also wish I'd had the chance to interview Leonard Bernstein. Um, he was not out at the time I was working on my book, and I had uh, uh, asked one of my friends who worked for him about interviewing him, and he first said no. And then uh, not long before I handed in the, in the manuscript of the book, she called me and said, he's interested in talking to you. He, he, he wants to come out in the book. Um, and he died two weeks later. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there's so many people who I didn't interview who are now, I, of course, wish I, wished I had. Um, and we're now growing the archive, the Making Gay History archive. So um, I'm making a list, checking it twice, and seeing who I'll interview next. I urge people who are interested in this to uh, do their own exploring and find out what's going on or what went on in their communities and how they got to where they are now. And if they want to catch up on this history through your podcast, how do they do that? Easiest way is to go to the website, makinggayhistory.com, um, and you can listen to all the episodes there and also have lots of information with each episode, including links and um, to articles and photo, uh, historic photographs. 
Um, or you can, if you're a subscriber to podcasts, you can download it easily on every, it's on every single podcast platform there is. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a total pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Eric Marcus is the creator and host of the Making Gay History podcast. Eric mentioned his work with History Unerased, the organization working to train teachers to bring LGBTQ history into U.S. classrooms. Deb Fowler is the co-founder of History Unerased. She joins me now in the studio. Deb, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, George. It's great to be here. So what's the mission of History Unerased? Very simply, the mission of History Unerased is to bring LGBTQ history into all classrooms to create a more just and harmonious world. What inspired you to found this organization? There was a series of spark plugs between the co-founder, Miriam Morgenstern, and myself. We were formerly, I like to say, boots on the ground, in the trenches, classroom teachers at a very diverse urban high school. Um, Where was this? This was in Lowell, Massachusetts. Yeah, so we were there 30-plus years combined, and I produced a documentary film through Gay Eyes. Uh, that's another segment. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and the the film spotlighted seven uh, high school teachers, five students, and other members of the community. And through the series, the long editing process and hearing their voices over and over again, there was a very profound, pervasive message, and that is that K-12 schools have a unique opportunity and responsibility to do much more to improve the academic and social-emotional well-being of LGBTQ youth. Yeah, let's talk about the issue of bullying in schools, still a big deal for LGBTQ students, no question. Absolutely, and I think that there is a grand misunderstanding collectively that since 2015, marriage equality, that we're all set, that things are better. And Paradoxically, though, the statistics relating to LGBTQ youth and homelessness, suicidality, bullying, dropout rates, risk behaviors, they're all worsening. And we see our work as um, my wife is a behavior analyst, so I like to use her terminology sometimes, and that is a behavior analytic approach of antecedent intervention to reach young people with this content before they are, I'm using air quotes, carefully taught um, that that vicious cycle of um, shame and fear. So how do you do that? How do you introduce LGBTQ history into traditional U.S. history curriculum? Yes, thank you for that question. And it, it's important to note that people who we label and understand today as LGBTQ have always existed. And this history, it's not separate from, it is a part of, and it has always been a part of our collective shared historical narrative. So for some examples, uh, every child learns about Martin Luther King from a very early age. Martin Luther King's uh, lead strategist, right-hand man, Bayard Rustin, has been left out of the history books because he was an openly gay man. And it is important not to... The learning outcome there is not that Bayard Rustin was gay, but the the transparency that here was this man who took tremendous risks, but also the entire movement took tremendous risks because he was a central figure, organized the March on Washington, and was left out of the program. So that is a learning outcome that students can engage with is to, to reflect upon why that may have been, why it was important to the movement to not include his name and look at an, in an expanded way at a more um, accurate reflection of the American civil rights story. 
Who are among other LGBTQ notables who you think have been lost to history? Oh, so many. Uh, Frank Kameny is one. He, um, during the Cold War era, during McCarthyism, when the Red Scare, uh, every child learns about about that and about the um, blacklisting. What also happened at the same time and affected exponentially more individuals was what has been dubbed the Lavender Scare, where the Red Scare lasted a very short amount of time. The Lavender Scare lasted 40 years. And Frank Kameny was the first person to fight back against that policy. And we have a fascinating inquiry kit. The content that we develop, we don't call it curriculum per se, because the intention is that it is woven into the curriculum. And we are working closely with Eric Marcus and Sarah Birmingham. Eric Marcus has a trove, an archive of 100 oral history interviews, and Frank Kameny is one of those. The Harlem Renaissance is also part of this inquiry kit, right? Absolutely, yes. There are so many figures within the Harlem Renaissance that it would be very helpful for young people to see that the queer angle of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, with urbanization. If someone is a teacher is... um, introducing students to urbanization and what that meant for previously marginalized communities, bringing in that queer component of the Harlem Renaissance is critical with James Baldwin and Nora Zill Hurston and so many others. Outside of a program like yours, is something like the Stonewall Riots even taught in schools? It depends on where you are in the country. There are some textbooks. Now, essentially, we're moving away from textbooks. Some young people in pockets do learn a small bit about the Stonewall Riots. But where the Stonewall Riots fits in our American civil rights story is what happened really after that fact. And gay organizations, gay homophile organizations, there were only a handful of those prior to 1969. After the Stonewall Riots, Within the next several years, there were then thousands of these organizations. So that's really the impactful piece for young people to understand. Basically teaching the gay rights movement in the same way that we learn about the civil rights movement. As a part of the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. yes. Because we don't see, you know, having a a month designated to LGBTQ history doesn't make sense. What are we going to do when we run out of months? (laughs) So um, we we don't see any division between black history, women's history, LGBTQ history. We see it all woven as part of our one story. You mentioned marriage equality. Now, there is something else that should be incorporated into our American history, right? Absolutely. Yes. We've just been working with the Massachusetts Department of Education. They are Um, since 2003, the framework and standards had not been updated. So we have been the LGBTQ content advisors for Massachusetts Department of Education, and they have taken happily almost all of our recommendations. And a piece of that is to include Supreme Court cases, such as Lawrence v. Texas, the Goodrich case, and then the Obergefell case. Now, you work with K-12, through you mentioned, right? We do. We work with, we see our work, three components as tantamount in importance, and that is the pedagogy, the content, and the training. Because, you know, what's happening in California with the Fair Education Act, that's great. That's progress. That's evolution. However, um, I, I hate to be critical of it, but there were no underpinnings to ensure the efficacy of that policy. So for those unfamiliar with with what's happening in California, yeah. why don't you give us the background there? Sure. So in 2012, the FAIR, educa- that's an acronym for FAIR, Accurate, Inclusive, and Respectful. 
And that was a policy designed to allow for every district in California to include LGBTQ history and also teach about differently abled people and Pacific Islanders. So it wasn't until November of 2017 that California Department of Education approved particular content that will be included in the next uh, version of textbooks. So we see our work as, as different, as a grassroots approach. So we are providing the training and the resources that educators need to infuse this content proficiently and with confidence. Is California right now the only state with that kind of law on the books? In a significant manner, yes. Yes. Are there any states that have restrictions on the kind of LGBTQ history that can be brought into a school? Oh, sure. There are some states that I think it's called the no-pro-homo, so where it is um, illegal to mention any gay topic in a classroom. I know there was significant pushback in North Carolina, am I correct? Yes. However, we have been in contact with a lot of educators and school administrators in North Carolina, and so there's uh, they're very upset that the perception of how they interpret the LGBTQ community is is not reflective of how their state's policies are pejorative. So where are you primarily working right now here in the USA? We um, are based in, in Massachusetts. So we're working in Massachusetts and other New England states, um, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maine. Um, we also just began, we were very happy, um, working with New York City Public Schools in January of this year. And we will be sponsoring the LGBTQ Curriculum Conference, which is June 7th. That will be hosting 400 educators from Brooklyn's and Queens. And we have um, secured an allocation from the New York City Council Committee on Education to develop content with Eric Marcus and Sarah Burningham and his archive for grades 8 and 11. How do you approach the history differently for younger kids compared to older kids? Well, the content is a bit different, but the approach is the same. And the pedagogy, the methodology of inquiry is, and thank you for that question, because there's a lot of misperception that what we're doing is outing people in history, and that is not it at all. So, for example, for the elementary level, everything is inquiry-based. So young people are looking at primary and secondary sources from Library of Congress, One Archives Foundation, New York Public Library. So in the elementary level, we have... um, a unit on the Civil War. And so young people engage with the story, true story, of Sarah Rosetta Wakeman Lyons, who presented as a uh, Union soldier and fought in the Civil War. And so what young people are exploring are the possible motivations for Sarah to dress as a soldier. Was it economic? Was it for a relationship? Was it um, how she felt the most comfortable with her identity? So there's no judgment. So that's really important to note that All of our content is not assigning any judgment. What would you say are the biggest challenges to bringing this history into curriculum in schools? Our our biggest challenge right now is securing enough funding to ensure that we can reach as many young people as possible. What kind of response have you received from LGBTQ students who have experienced this in the classroom now? Wow. Well, you know, when we started, when we founded History and Erased, we were still practicing. So we could beta test some of this content. And the response was overwhelming from LGBTQ identifying and non-LGBTQ identifying. And what 
I learned from them is that collectively, we are disrespecting young people's capacity for sophisticated understanding. Collectively, we are disrespecting their need and expectation for us to tell them the truth in the content in which we present. So many anecdotes. If I don't know how much time we have, but the, the most salient one, um, new immigrants and refugees from every corner of the world, some from native countries that criminalize homosexuality. Then I don't remember if it was a lesson on Bayard Reston or the Lavender Scare, but this young man, Mohammed, came up to me and said, Miss, I need to t- talk to you after class. And what he said to me was, everyone in the world needs to learn about this. This can change the world. A couple of years later, we, we stayed in touch. He's off in college. Uh, he shared with me that he connected with these two young men in one of his classes. They did everything together. And one of these young men came out as gay. And the third young man completely disassociated from him. And Mohammed said to me that because, he said, Miss, because of what I learned in our class, I could understand him better. And we became even better friends. And I, I love that anecdote because, uh, yes, of course, we want to mitigate those awful statistics for LGBTQ youth. But even beyond that, this is important for everybody. And it's about, yes, safer schools and communities and creating better neighbors and friends. That said, have you received any pushback from students, parents, or even educators? Not directly. Uh, We have had some press, and in some of the comments, like, P.S., don't read the comments section. (laughs) (laughs) Never a good idea. (laughs) Unless you have a glass of wine. (laughs) Um, But no, we have not had any direct pushback. What we have experienced is a lot of people have had, it's been percolating that there is this need, but they need the resources, they need the training so that we can dismantle that unfortunate conflation that LGBTQ history is somehow about sexual behavior. So that whenever we're in trainings with teachers, as soon as they navigate the primary and secondary sources, you can see it wash over their affect like, oh, okay, this is great. This is helpful. How much are you enlightening educators themselves who may not even know this history? Yeah, so we, I'm thinking of this one um, teacher, she taught U.S. History II, 1940 to present, for 20 years. And when she learned about the Lavender Scare for the first time, she was in tears with the profundity of what she had missed and essentially the thousands of young people that went through her classroom had missed. So it's, it's been very impactful. I would think even something like the Holocaust. How often mm-hmm. do we talk about all of the gay individuals who were killed in the Holocaust. Right. In paragraph 175, uh, I, I would say, I, I think very few people know that after the concentration camps were liberated, those who were wearing the pink triangle were sent to prison. And uh, that's, for those listeners who don't know, that's where the pink triangle came from, the reappropriation of that symbol to be something of, of power and pride. I know that your instructional material includes a glossary of terms. What would you say are among the more misunderstood LGBTQ terms? The word queer, definitely. And in trainings with with educators who are of a particular generation, that word is associated with a lot of negative connotation. And so there's sometimes a visceral response. Um, so just as talking about the pink triangle and reappropriating, that is that is what has happened with the term queer. It was reclaimed. It was reclaimed, absolutely. 
Any other terms? Oh, wow. The, the, the list of terms is now more than 50. Um, I, I think for, for educators, the most uh, the, the greatest concern they have is using the appropriate pronouns and terms with their students and knowing how to introduce their desire to be mindful and respectful of that. Uh, genderqueer, queer, th- those seem to be the most um, burdensome words for educators. But I can only speak from our experience in, in our trainings. What, if anything, has surprised you most about your transition out of the classroom into doing something like this? What has surprised me the most is that there are so many other people out there working toward this mission. And connecting with all of these people has been breathtaking. And to understand that, that we're not the only ones. You know, there are pockets of people throughout the United States and beyond that know how impactful this is. Reaching young people, the, the process of K-12 to education is the only way to ensure lasting LGBTQ equality. Are there good books out there that you would recommend people pick up and read about LGBTQ history? There are a lot of great books. And of course, I have to mention Eric Marcus. Um, I had a meeting earlier this morning and learned that a professor at Hunter College encourages everyone to read that first edition of Making History, The Struggle for Gay and Lesbian Equal Rights. And to understand this expansive civil rights movement through the voices of those who lived it is really powerful. Deb, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Deb Fowler is the co-founder of the organization History Unerased. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Caroline Rotante and Julia Seabode. And thank you so much for listening. Mm